Hello! Welcome to 2021 and Season 6 of the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. And if you haven't listened before, then I hope you enjoy everything that the podcast has to offer. All five previous seasons are available on the website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com or on your favourite podcast app. You can also find the Folklore Podcast Book Club on YouTube and on the website, and there are some more new features heading for the website soon, which is hopefully going to see more growth during this year. As usual, we invite you to keep in touch with us either by email at thefolklorepodcast at gmail.com or via our social media. Our Twitter is especially active, that's at FolklorePod if you don't already follow us, and we're on Facebook and Instagram too. And finally, if you want to show us extra support, then you can sign up to our Patreon page and get all sorts of extra content and rewards. And as I've said before, without the support of our Patreons, the podcast couldn't continue. We don't take advertising or sponsorship because we know that you don't like it, and that's the way that we would like it to stay. But there are costs and times are difficult, so that support ensures that we can keep producing the content that you enjoy. And there's also a donate link on the front page of the website for people who prefer to give one-off support. Now, on to today's episode, and for the first show of the new season... I'm delighted to welcome Dr Thomas Waters, the author of the book Cursed Britain, a history of witchcraft and black magic in modern times. Thomas is a lecturer in history at Imperial College in London, who, among his other teaching, runs a 20-week module called Spellbound, a history of magic from ancient times to the present day. His book Cursed Britain is published by Yale University Press, and you can find a review of it on the Folklore Podcast website. I spoke to Thomas before Christmas about his research. Uh, Thomas, welcome to the Folklore Podcast. It's lovely to have you here. Thanks so much, Mark. I'm very pleased to be here, and hello to all your listeners and possibly viewers as well. I don't know if you put video out or if it's just audio. Uh, The Patreon supporters will get to see you. Everybody else can hear you. Well, I'm sure the Patreon supporters will agree that it's well worth the money to see see me in my study here. (laughs) Yeah, a lovely study it is too, thank you. (laughs) Now, uh, we're going to talk today uh, about witchcraft and specifically about your book, Cursed Britain, A History of Witchcraft and Black Magic in Modern Times, to give it its full title. Uh, But before we do that, uh, just tell everybody a little bit about yourself and your research interests uh, and why you enjoy working with folklore. Certainly, thank you. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm from the north of England. I'm from Sheffield in, in sort of South Yorkshire on the border between Derbyshire and, uh, and, and, and South Yorkshire. And I don't know, I suppose as a, as a child, I, I went out with my uh, grandfather a lot, walking through the Peak Districts and the evocative sites of Derbyshire I'm sure many of your listeners will know in the Plague Village and all sorts of wonderful places throughout the Peak District, Stone Circles and, and, and that kind of thing. And uh, I, I guess it's some of the stories that my grandfather used, used to tell me that really kindled my interest in, um, in 
the supernatural, in, in ghosts, in, in witches and in, in fairies. I think if I was going to be a bit more frank, I would, I'd say it's not, not just kindled my interest, but also terrified me slightly at, at the time. It's a rather <laughs> impressionable little lad. Um, so, so, so they're sort of, you know, deep, like with a lot of people, really, I think, who are interested in these kind of topics, it's, uh, it, there's just some, some sort of imaginative chiming, but there's, there's just something that, yeah, connect, connects with you there, and it goes back way into your childhood. Um, but it, it kind of laid dormant for many years while I was a, a teenager and, you know, doing all kind of cool stuff or uh, in quotes, like playing in bands and, and so on. And my, my, my interest in, in folklore, in, 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 the, in the history of the supernatural, it, it re-emerged when I was um, a student, when I was at, at Leeds University. And as an undergraduate, I began to do research on the persistence of belief in witchcraft and ghosts and, and luck and all, all sorts of folkloric ideas throughout the Victorian period and I, I'm, I'm an academic historian now basically so I sort of you know I went to university and stayed at university uh, I, I was an undergraduate in Leeds and I went to do research projects in Oxford University and I, I just continued looking at the topic from there really and I, I'm glad to say that it's something that I don't I don't just do research on I also uh, I also do quite a lot of lot of teaching on on this area and uh, I well I, I currently work at Imperial College London where I teach an evening class uh, that's called Spellbound, the Social History of Magic, and it's sort of a 20-week course that co- tries to do a, a whistle-stop tour, really, of all the different varieties of, of, of magic and what have you. So that's that's a very short version. And is that a course that anybody can take? Is that a kind of uh, continuing education course? Is it, is it a broad kind of evening class type course? I'm sure people yeah, will be exactly. interested in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is a, anyone can take it. It's this. It, Currently, it's the second year that it's it's been running. Last year, we did we did it in, in person on these sort of well at this time of year anyway on these sort of dark uh, winter nights meeting up in London and uh, but but this year it's, it's it's been well like so much university teaching it's been delivered on online and I, th- I think that'll probably be the case in, in future as as well because the good thing about doing teaching online is that you can you can get people from all over the country and, and further afield in fact so yeah anyone anyone can take it and it it, it includes all sorts of stuff you know you know we've got a class on the history of ghosts another one on effigy magic uh, you know because I, I like to make sure that the uh the content is useful and you know if, if, you, if you want to put that into practice and uh, various topics really shamanism fortune telling the cunning craft witchcraft in the period of the witch trials uh, and also um, with the history of magic and I, th- I think this is something that I, I do in my book somewhat as well I, I try to go beyond Europe really and go beyond um, geographically the areas that many of us are, are familiar with because one of the most striking things about about magic past and present is how comparable it is across the world and across time in fact now that, that there are lots of there's lots of local variety there are lots of local sort of lots, lots of color you know you can find you know gins are more common in some parts of the world fairies in others for example but a lot of the basic ideas you know whether it be supernatural beings or, or, or spirits and ghosts or the idea of um, malicious interpersonal harm. A, a, a lot of these ideas I, I find are pretty similar throughout uh, time and, and space, basically. And I, I try to explore that in my class and in, in the books, so, so as well as, you know, there being classes on absolutely vital and fascinating topics like Europe during the period of the witch trials. It also looks at uh, witchcraft in the contemporary world, including in um, sub-Saharan Africa where the, these ideas are extremely prevalent. Yeah they certainly are and that's something I'll, I'll return to a little later on I think. Um, now 
Curse Britain is now out in paperback, uh, originally out in hardback, um, and, it, and is a book which carries one word from Ronald Hutton on the on the front cover, and that is pioneering, which I, I think is a fantastic description of the book. There's an awful lot in this book. Um, I mean, the, the, the title you know, suggests that you're covering uh, the history of witchcraft in modern times, but that still spans a 200-year period, let's be honest. You start from, from 1800 and go through to the present day. Um, how did you go about deciding how you were going to structure this book? And, and how, in fact, did you research such a, a wide variety of topics? Well, I think the... This, this might sound like a slightly banal thing to say, but I, I think the, the key theme in history is change over time. I think you've got to get that across. Now, sometimes when you're writing a history book or if you're writing a history essay or you're doing a history talk or so, something like that, it makes sense analytically to divide up the topic in a thematic way and you can look at the sort of different dimensions and how they, how they fit together. But basically with this, this, this book, although it addresses different themes, I, I wanted to get across the sense of change over time. So how people's notion of witchcraft and how their fears, how their suspicions, how their stories, their practices and beliefs, how, how, how they changed over time from a, a very different world from our own. And you know, as you say, it begins in the early 1800s in late Georgian Britain, when Britain was a predominantly rural place in the midst of the Industrial Revolution. And then, you know, consider, you know, the incredible changes that have occurred since that period with the Oh, the, the, the expansion of different forms of government, for example, different forms of policing, improvements in living standards in many respects, at least until recent years, all, all sorts of things. I, I want to sort of um, bring in the wider social history, really, looking at things like migration, immigration, economic change, social change, changing the history of medicine. And by looking at the topic and bringing it together in a, in a, in a chronological way, I, I, I thought I could relate the history of belief in witchcraft and particularly the kind of the scary type of witchcraft I suppose the harmful type of witchcraft which is the main focus of the book um, yeah so, so that, that was my that was my idea really was to, uh, to to focus on chronological change over over time but I, I must say and, and I'm sure any of your listeners who've, um, who've, who've done research and have written themselves um, they'll know that you don't sort of start at the beginning then finish at the end in terms of your research. I, I tried to kind of put it in into order and to get a coherent story and a coherent argument across in the finished product. But I, I primarily began actually researching the Victorian period. So from about the um, 1830s to the 1900s. Um, and then I moved back and I moved, moved, moved forwards, which if you like, I can, I can, I can talk a bit about why I, I continued the story right until the, till the present day. Yeah, absolutely. Carry on. Well, my research specialism is in uh, the social history of religion and popular belief and magic in the Victorian period. And I, I became interested in, in that because, well, I, I was quite a fan of Victorian history and the, I suppose the quite august traditional Victorian history of the, re the reform of parliament and political developments and you know, improvements in public health and, and, and urbanisation and this sort of thing. And um, um, uh, while I was while I was studying that, I was, I was sort of reading at random, really, in some of the primary sources from the period. And I came across a wonderful diary written by a clergyman who lived on the Welsh border in the 1870s, a chap called Francis Kilbert. He was just uh, he was a curate, basically. He was quite a lowly clergyman, not particularly known during his lifetime. But he kept this incredibly 
rich and humane and sympathetic diary about his interactions with the ordinary rural people on the Welsh border. And it contained references to the familiar Victorian history that I liked, you know, debates over evolution, for example, and the, the crisis of faith within the Christianity of sort of hyper-educated people in this period. But it also contained details about um, people's ways of looking at the world, people's experiences, people's stories that really I didn't expect to find at all in the Victorian period. For instance, it, it, it contained references to, oh, I don't know, people who'd been, um, been afflicted with tragedies, some of their relatives had died maybe. And the things that they tell Francis Kilbert about this was that they met their brother or their, their sister in a spirit form on, on the road at, at night before they received the news of, of this person dying. You, you know, so you have these kind of references to very powerful, really moving and sort of vivid supernatural beliefs. And um, I began to study the modern history of witchcraft in the Victorian era. Uh, and, and I was doing that for, for very, very many years for a... Uh, at length such that I was really quite troubling my family and they were wondering what on earth is he doing you know he sort of spent 10 years on this what what can it, is, is this all just a joke is he, is he just having this on um so I was kind of bringing it together and I thought maybe I'll publish something on, on witchcraft in the Victorian period and it was really just open, opening my eyes a bit more looking up a bit more from the library looking a bit round a bit more in the present day that I, I came to see that actually although they're not perhaps as widespread as they were in the Victorian era there are still people that believe in what you might call esoteric interpersonal harm that today, you know, that there's still people who, who, who fear this, who sometimes feel they're afflicted by this. If, if things are going wrong in their lives, if maybe they have start to have some health problems that aren't readily solved, maybe they have relationship problems, maybe they're struggling to get a job or, or, or sort of keep in work and they try all the normal, all the normal remedies. And sometimes in, in kind of desperation, this feeling sneaks up on people that actually there might be something, something else at work, something stranger at work, something that's rooted in the ill will and the esoteric and the mystical practices of another person. And so I, I basically began to see evidence of this in the contemporary world, whether that be in the small ads that you, could, you can find in the back of some local newspapers like the Metro. I can remember I had a post at um, Leeds University for a bit and uh, I can remember one morning reading the Metro in a sort of sleep deprived state on the train up to Leeds. And there, there was a little advert for um, a, a spiritual healer who, who was saying, you know, curses, bad luck, need help in exams, this kind of thing, call. And, and I thought, well, well, you know, this is so similar in many ways to what the cunning folk of the Victorian era and um, before were doing, that there's got, to be a, there's got to be a story that really links up the history and the folklore of the 19th century with the present day. Um, so, so, in, so in recent years, I've, I've been sort of trying to expand my knowledge of different currents, different varieties of witchcraft belief that are prevalent in the world today. And that, that means that, you know, spend, I spend time in archives, spent, spent a lot of time down at the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Boscastle in Cornwall, working on some of the material that people who believe they've been bewitched have deposited in the library there. But, I, but you, you know, you can also find me at sort of mind, body and spirit festivals and all, you know, all, all the kind of places you could imagine today where you can get little hints, little echoes, uh, evidence and resonances of the, um, the persistence of, of this quite unnerving idea. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it, as well, because there are, there are lots of 
different areas, as you say, where belief still exists, the, the mind, body and spirit festivals, the people who follow more traditional pathways, the, what you might term to be new age and so on. Uh, and so the subject is treated slightly differently, perhaps, by by these different people, but yet, but yet still continues in modern times. Um, how has belief changed over that 200 year period that you follow? So from the start of the 19th century through to the present day? Well, there's a, there's a basic way that the sort of basic core of belief in this type of harmful witchcraft, if you like, is, is, is pretty similar. It's, it, it would have, the varieties that you find today, and, the, and the, as you say, the many different varieties, it could be things like psychic vampirism or, or psychic attack or something like that. You, you find all sorts of iterations of the idea of esoteric interpersonal harm today. But these basic ideas would have been recognisable to people in the early 1800s. So, so there's, a, there's a kind of a, a very elemental concept that's... Um, that's marked more by continuity than change, I think. And I, I, was, I was trying to get at it a little bit just then. It's, it, it's when things start to go wrong and lots of things go wrong at the same time and they're not amenable to the usual remedies, you know, going to the doctor, going to a counsellor, trying harder, being nicer, this kind of thing. And, uh, and, and people then begin to wonder and, and uh, be, become tempted by these otherwise what seem like quite unlikely ideas that, that somebody might be behind this and using strange powers. Uh, but having said that, although the basic concept is pretty similar, that, that there have been an enormous number of changes between the popular belief in witchcraft in the kind of late Georgian period in the early 1800s and today. I mean, perhaps the most striking change is that belief in that kind of, and those kind of sinister forces is, is less prevalent nowadays than it was then. Now, Obviously, one of the points of my book, and one way that I quarrel with, uh, quarrels perhaps overstating it, one way that I differ with other scholars of this topic is that, you know, I don't think that belief in Maleficent, as, as you could call it, witchcraft died out completely. Uh, but it is less prevalent n nowadays. I mean, there are a few opinion polls that ask people, even in witchcraft, it's a pretty vague question, but it's something like, if, if memory serves in, in, in this country today, something like one in eight people, sometimes it depends which groups of people you ask, will say they believe. Um, but apart from that sort of change in the overall uh, prevalence and, and level of, of belief, probably, the, uh, probably the, one of the key changes is in how people express it and how people act on their beliefs. Uh, witchcraft beliefs in the early 1800s tended to at least if people could you know the feeling they were bewitched in a kind of ordinary way with a good luck charm or a horseshoe hung up or a ritual marking protecting their house they they could become very violent um they, they could involve oh i don't know intimidating or ostracizing the people who were blamed for uh belaying the curse or they could involve uh, a physical attack on the on the person who was blamed for laying the curse some of these attacks were quite ritualistic that involved scratching people or, or, or stabbing people to to draw blood in the belief that this was a really potent way to break the power of spells and these kind of violent expressions of belief in witchcraft they waned in the later 1800s and early 1900s and again in the literature on on this topic there's disagreement among uh, the people who write about it about why that was i i, I think primarily and as you, as you can read about in my book 
that the main reason was because policing was becoming better, was becoming more professional, was becoming more prevalent. And as the community became more mindful that, you know, you were going to end up in court, you were going to get fined, you might even get sent to jail if you did this kind of stuff to, to somebody. And then people started to pull back on the kind of more violent expressions of belief in witchcraft. Um, so, so that's one of the, one of the differences, I guess, uh, the, the, uh, the, the ways that people try to deal with being bewitched are, are generally, and thankfully, less, less violent, less disturbing, less, less harmful nowadays. Although I have to add the caveat that, that there are forms of and varieties of belief in harmful witchcraft that can sometimes lead to absolutely terrible abuse and human rights abuses. Um, it, it, it's difficult to generalise because there's so many intricate varieties, but, but most of these tend to be associated with more extreme forms of religion, uh, whether it's certain Pentecostal varieties of Christianity, for example, where there'll be a belief that, you know, kind of violent exorcisms or exorcisms that involve shouting at someone or something like that can, um, can kind of push out an, an evil power that's taking control of somebody. Um, so, so there's a, there's a, and, and it, it's a bit of a sad conclusion to the book in some ways. There's a hint, uh, and I don't want to overstate it, but there's, there's a hint that some of the more troubling consequences of belief in this harmful type of witchcraft, that these have made something, a, a minor resurgence in recent years. And I think we need to, as a community, and particularly as people like yourself and, and like your listeners, as, particularly as people who are very interested in magic and in folklore, I think we really need to pay attention to this and make sure that, you know, that, that this doesn't happen ultimately and that certainly that it doesn't get any worse. Um, so, so basically, to get, to get back to your point, how's witchcraft belief changed? It's become somewhat less prevalent. It's become somewhat less violent. And, it, and it's, also, um, it's also become a lot more diverse as well. In the early 1800s, people had circulate stories. You know, they, they'd tap around the fire at night. Maybe they'd tell stories about people with reputations for witchcraft from a generation or, or, or two ago. And they'd often frame these kind of events and these kind of stories by referring back to the biblical references to witchcraft and magic, to the, you know, these the sort of horrible laws in the Old Testament, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live and all this, this kind of thing in Levit Leviticus, or to the story of the witch of Endor in the Old Testament, the, um, the, the prophet, who, um, the, um, the conjurer who, who called up the ghost of the, uh, uh, or, the, or the spirit of the prophet Samuel, or, or maybe a few things in the New Testament as well. Uh, and, and nowadays, although there are very Christian varieties of uh, belief in the, in the dark side of witchcraft, if you will, there are also all sorts of other ideas. And, and, and it's not even called witchcraft sometimes, as I was sort of getting out earlier on. Um, the idea of, of, of psychic attack, for example, has, has a fair bit of currency among, um, I suppose you might say, in, in the esoteric scene. And, and, and I, I trace in the book uh, the, the development of that idea where the term came from and, and how it became more prevalent. And it, 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 it basically kind of built on some, um, built on mesmerism, built on spiritualism. It built on the idea that, that, that human beings have some sort of, have, 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 have some sort of control over of invisible, strange powers, maybe magnetic, maybe related to personality, maybe got a physiological aspect to it. And the idea was basically developed in the early 1900s by an occultist called Dion Fortune, who'd done a lot of um, study in, in, in psychiatry and in psychology and in physiotherapy. And she borrowed a term 
from physiotherapy, psychic attack, which had originally been used to describe the state when, you know, somebody has a, a bit of a meltdown or, you know, breakdown, something like that. And, and she kind of used that uh, in, 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 her, uh, in, in her occult way of thinking to um, really to give, give a name to the idea that ill will and uh, ill will and control of these esoteric forces can be used to harm other people. Um, so those are, those are basically the main changes. It's less prevalent, somewhat less violent, and much more diverse with, with all sorts of different esoteric varieties of, of, of witchcraft belief, as well as a basic Christian one. Going back to that Christian point, just very briefly, actually, and I, and I don't want this to become a religious or a philosophical discussion necessarily, um, but there, there are controversial views there in, in and of themselves. I mean, you, you cite the Witch of Endor, for example, uh, looking at biblical references and, and also this phrase of thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. But even the definition of witch is debatable, isn't it, in those sorts of terms? That, uh, what we understand as a witch in the modern times that you're discussing isn't necessarily what those biblical references are referring to is it yeah that that's right yes there's there's actually a very long history of uh, scholarly debate about what the biblical references seemingly to which actually mean and these debates go right back to the 1500s and to, to, to earlier it, in in most versions of the bible that speakers of english will be familiar with uh, particularly the uh, king james authorized version it, it'll say which but it's not entirely clear whether the the Hebrew references were actually to witch or to something else like poisoner. And it, it becomes even more complicated than that because throughout history and indeed in still in much of the world today, the concept of poison and a poisoner is quite an ambiguous one. You know, when some of us today hear the term poison and poisoner, we might think of something strictly uh, pharmacological, some, something secular, you know, putting arsenic in people's food, that kind of thing. But that's not how people in the past typically understood poisoning and not how some people in around the world today understood poisoning. Poisoning has had certain occult connotations in the past and, as I say, else, elsewhere. So, so, yeah, it gets really complicated. It's, it's not entirely evident what the Hebrew words mean. Something's so, uh, bound. Something yeah, yeah. And there are suggestions sometimes as well that it is, it is something as simple as... Uh, a woman who has knowledge outside of the sphere of what she should be expected to have knowledge of. It could be something as, as simple and as broad as that in some cases. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this takes us on to the massive topic of what a witch is and what witchcraft is. And I suppose the short answer to, to, to those questions is very, very many things indeed. Um, and, 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 and of, of course, I, I wouldn't want uh, your listeners just to, to think that, you know, I, I insist that all there is to witchcraft is, is the harmful type of witchcraft. I don't think that for one, for one moment, but uh, it, it, it's something that's still debated today. I mean, it's, it, it's still a kind of problem, really, in, in the world today in terms of interfaith dialogue that some more, I suppose, more, more fundamentalist varieties of religion insist on understanding all witchcraft in the most negative way in terms of, you know, trying to harm other people, trying to bewitch other people, trying to curse other people, when, as, as we know, 
you know, there are hundreds of thousands, millions of witches around the world who do nothing of the sort and who, as you say, are just people who, um, you know, people who are involved in alternative forms of spirituality, who are focused more on communing with, with, with powers of the earth and with uh, using magic for good and for, for healing and, and for soothing and what have you. Yes, uh, and that is a very important point to make. But but let's let's be fair and let's just understand where we're going here. Your book looks at uh, black magic and the darker side of witchcraft. It's why it's called Cursed Britain, after all. Uh, and that is what we're going to be discussing for yeah. the remainder of this. So so we, yes, we absolutely do acknowledge that fact. But but let's just put it into context yeah. and say that is what we're talking about here now. It's, I say, it's a 200-year period. There's a lot of stuff in here, uh, far more than we could cover in one interview. You very helpfully break it down into blocks of like 30, 40 years at a time, uh, which, which still gives us a lot to work with. Now, uh, I asked Tracy to uh, read and review this book, and that review is on the Folklore Podcast website now, and a lot of people listening to this interview will probably already have read the review, if not, in fact, the book. Um, and I asked her when she was doing that to, to highlight maybe half a dozen points, because this is a, an area that she researches a lot as well, of course, highlight half a dozen points that, that really engaged her interest when she was reading it and were important points to pull out of this book. Um, and I'm going to use those half a dozen to kind of guide us through this 200-year period. And the first stopping point on this journey uh, is in 1825 and this is a section uh, which talks about uh, a gentleman called Isaac Stebbings who is um, essentially tried as, as a witch. Now um, tell us a little bit about this case but also whether or not this case is unusual sitting in 1825 when, when really as, as people will hear in a second it's something that would have been more at home in people's minds a couple of hundred years previously to that date, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're going back now, as you say, Mark, to 1825 to just about the time when the first passenger railway opened, um, opened in Britain and when in, in the Northwest, big factories making cotton goods were, were, were springing up, you know, kind of Regency Britain type period. And yet, in 1825, down in a little village called Wickham Skeeth in Suffolk, uh, a poor gentleman, a, a hawker, somebody who went around trying to sell odds and ends and little pamphlets and, you, you know, little knickknacks and ironware and that kind of thing. A poor gentleman who went around the villages in Suffolk acquired a rather unenviable reputation. Uh, a reputation for bewitching people, a reputation for cursing people a reputation for afflicting people through supernatural means with ill health people who offended him and it, it, it was pretty sort of typical in, in certain respects that the, the the people who ultimately got blamed for, for things going wrong the things that were attributed to witchcraft were often people like Isaac Stebbings not normally men it must be said but but they were often people who had slightly frosty slightly fraught relationships with their neighbors the kind of frosty and fraught relationships that might result from going around begging or asking for money or trying to sort of you know trying to sort of coax people into buy some buy something from you that they didn't really want 
And that's exactly what happened to Isaac Stebbings. And over the years, as he was doing his rounds in, in Suffolk, calling at the cottage doors and at, at the farmhouses, people started to whisper things about him. You know, when they, they started to fall ill, when they had episodes of, of mental illness and mental crisis, or when they had accidents on the farms or in their w- workshops, they, they started to say things like, oh, it's, it's old Isaac at, at work again, or it, it must be him. Ultimately, something that, uh, something that made his case quite different, though, was, was the way that his neighbours and he himself dealt with these accusations. These innuendos, these rumours, uh, they were really upsetting and disturbing for him. You, you can imagine that he was probably somewhat ostracised from, from, from the community. He probably heard this all the time. People wouldn't trust him. And so eventually in 1825, he, he consented and he, he, he agreed with a, a suggestion that went around the village in Wickham Skeeth that he should be tested to see if he was a wizard, as they called him, you know, by which they meant the sort of harmful type of wizard, that he should be tried for a witch. And the way that he'd be tested would be that he would uh, be swum in the in the local pond. I think it was called the Grimmer. So they didn't drag him in there. They didn't throw him in there. They they got his agreement, and it was news about around, about this went all around the village. And one Saturday morning, the, the villagers lined up around the pond, and Isaac arrived, and he he took off his clothes, and he was there in just his sort of um, you know in his underwear and in his in his white shirt. And he was, he was a little man. He was an old man. I think he was in his sixties at this point. And he was chaperoned into the water by a couple of burly chaps. And what they wanted to do was test him in, in, in the way that would, would have been familiar to people in the 1600s and the 1700s. In other words, they wanted to see if he floated or not, if he was, if he was immersed in the water. Because if he floated, the thinking was that the, the waters were rejecting this evil body. And that would be a sign that, that he, he was indeed guilty of these crimes of of, of using strange powers to um, begin patterns of misfortunes on the people that had offended him. So he was taken into the pond. He was laid on his back. He was, he was laying out on his back. And you can imagine the sort of crowd around watching to see what happened. And disastrously for Isaac, he, he did in fact float. There was a local journalist there. The journalist said that he was bobbing around like a cork for half an hour or so. You know, you can imagine in the sort of freezing cold waters, this poor little old man you know this kind of stoop figure this guy that ought to you know in a just world would have been retired but not in the poverty stricken world of the early 1800s well he floated and it seemed to confirm that everything that had been said about him was true and that all the kind of concerns and the worries and the disdain that his neighbors had for him was warranted and justified well Isaac naturally was horrified about this and he actually went to the um he went to the extent of saying that he, he wanted a retrial, he wanted to be tried again to make sure that it was actually true. And he, want, he wanted a, another man to be um, subjected to the same sort of test next to him to, to, to make sure that, you know, this, this really was a, a viable test. And actually the villagers agreed with this. They were going to do it the next week, but eventually, and, and thankfully for, for Isaac's um, sake, the local vicar, vicar got wind of what was going on and he, uh, he stepped in and he kind of put a stop to to all of this and you know he kind of used his influence but yeah basically Isaac Stebbings this 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 poor old chap got a terrible reputation and was um was was subjected to the water trial in 1820s England. And is that unusual is that like a one-off case really um because as I say this harks back to something a lot earlier doesn't it? Yeah it 
it, it, it wasn't completely exceptional. It was, in, it was increasingly unusual, but there were a few other cases. There are a few other references, and uh, there's another one from, um, from Essex, I think it is, in the, in, in the 1860s that's, that's, that's kind of got echoes of this. It's, it's some, some poor guy who went around telling fortunes, got kind of pushed in a, in a pool because some local villagers thought, you know, similarly to poor old Isaac Stebbings that he'd been bewitching them. Um, so it's not a complete one-off, but, but, but you can see that kind of communal justice, uh, c- communal trials of, of alleged witches were, were still carrying on even up into the early 1800s. And, and this is the sort of thing where I think the creation of professional police forces from about the 1830s to the 1860s becomes really important. Um, so that's really what put an end to these, 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 these sort of final, quite brutal um, acts against, uh, against people who have these reputations. Yes, it's, it stops this kind of civil justice and, and mobs with pitchforks, doesn't it, that, that we see in these kinds of things, I guess. But that, that kind of takes me on to the second stopping point, which is around the same sort of time. Um, and that is um, the work of witch scratchers and, and witch abusers, which, again, is something that people would naturally put a lot earlier. And you think about the, the, the kind of terrible reign of Matthew Hopkins and the, the witch finders of those times. Now, this is in the early part of the 19th century again, isn't it? The early 1800s through to kind of 1830s, 1840s, where a very similar sort of thing is happening. Now, is this something that's happening publicly in an organised way? And, and what are these people doing? It is happening publicly in an organised way. At any rate, in the early 1800s, there was a long-standing belief that one of the most effective ways to break a witch's spells was to draw his or her blood. You can find this belief during the period of the witch trials. And this belief persisted throughout the 18th century and into the the, the 19th century. It wasn't the kind of thing people did readily or immediately. When people, you know, when you people first started to have the suspicion that their misfortunes had, had a kind of a cult character, that there was something unusual about them. Naturally, you know, you can imagine if you were in that situation and you got thinking that way, you know, you wouldn't go straight to the most extreme um, method or, or solution. You know, it, initially people would do think, you know, maybe they'd try prayer. They'd try just avoiding the, uh, the person who thought that they thought was responsible, that, you, you know, not talking to them, this kind of thing. They, they might try with, 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 with protective charms, with, with, with little amulets and, uh, and ritual markings in their properties, all sorts of other things. But if people got desperate enough and the various kind of non-aggressive, non-violent remedies didn't seem to work, then, then people whose, whose lives were, you know, the, the lives were kind of like falling apart, basically. They got desperate enough to think that, yes, this is worth a try. I'm going to, I'm going to grab hold. I'm going to plan. I'm going to organize it. I'm going to grab hold of the person I think is responsible. I'm going to pull out a pin. I'm going to pull out a nail. Maybe I'll even pull out a little knife from my pocket and I'm going to cut them. And the, it was a ritualistic attack. So it wasn't, wasn't meant to, you know, it certainly wasn't meant to kill people or really to injure people. It was meant to draw blood in a very specific way. Often it, it, it was felt to be more potent if it was done above the breath, above the mouth. So people would have them would find themselves if, if you got this kind of unenviable reputation it'd be sort of cut and slashed across the forehead not in all cases and in the um, in the early 1800s people the people who felt they were bewitched and 
got this desperate, they were willing to try this vicious remedy. They'd actually get other people to help them. They'd, they'd in some cases, they'd get their families, they'd get their daughters, they'd get, you know, they'd get, get other people. And, and they'd do it very publicly. They'd do it partly to embarrass the, the, the alleged witch in public, and partly to kind of get, um, get the, the community or their village or their town to sort of implicitly condone what was going on. Because if you're doing this publicly, and these things did happen publicly, they happened in places like Sheffield Market, for example, in the very early 1800s as well. You know, so we're not just talking about Somerset villages here. You know, they happened in Leeds, they happened in Manchester, they happened in Sheffield. If, if you do it publicly like that, it, it, it sort of, it, it, it kind of signifies where the community's sympathies lay. And if they don't get involved, if they don't protect the person, and don't kind of pull off the witch scratcher, then then you know that they kind of that other people suspect the same things. I should say that that there actually um, and, and, and encouragingly there, there were a few cases where communities did actually protect the alleged witch. It, it wasn't simple enough that you know if you accuse someone of being a witch, then everyone would suddenly buy it. Everyone would suddenly say yes, of course that you know that woman or that 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 man. Yeah, we we know they're trouble. It 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 was only kind of endorsed and allowed to happen by communities when people had sort of built up reputations really for uh, being engaged in the dark arts in some ways and, and there were cases where people were were pulled off and were stopped and, and people were protected but there were many more cases I'm afraid to say where that didn't happen and where this um, either an individual or, or a group of family members had, had, had grab hold of someone as I, as I said and you know pull out something really horrible like a little rusty nail or a pin and and do their do their bloody work and again, I think the point here that I, uh, I'm trying to raise is, once again, this is happening much later on than you would necessarily expect. Again, people would normally be placing this kind of practice in the 1600s, the 1700s, the early modern period. And yet here we are heading towards, you know, Victorian England um, and we're still finding the same things happening. And I think that's probably surprising to a lot of people. And again, the evolution of the police force is what starts to stop yes. this. Absolutely, yeah. There, you know, there's a, there's a tradition of policing, but it, it tended to be done before the reforms of the early Victorian period. Policing was, was very amateurish. It was very local. You know, you just have a kind of like an old bloke who kept watch at night or, you, you know, some, a bit better than that sometimes, but you didn't really get professional policing and, and more policing expansion in numbers and, and until 1830s, 1850s, 1860s and beyond. Um, and when the police forces started being rolled out in towns and then, you know, then, then in the countryside, that started to dampen down this kind of activity. First of all, the kind of communal attacks that you call them witch mobbings have some horrible examples of that hor horrible affair in, in Cambridgeshire in the 1810s, for example, but that, a family called the, the Izzard family from you know, from Great Paxton. They had their their neighbours were you know, on several occasions came round and and, and attacked um, a lady called Anne Izzard, and they they kind of bully and hector her relatives and her sort of daughters and what have you. These these communal attacks they stopped first as the I suppose as the community became more um, more governed ultimately more uh, regulated and more subject to the law, and then a bit later they kind of individual attacks you know where somebody had just planned on their own just to grab hold of the person they blamed and, and ritualistically scratch them they came they started to come to an end in about the well 
start to wane discernibly in the kind of 1860s, 1870s, that, that kind of time. But again, it, it, there's a debate here and there's sort of a matter of interpretation as, you know, did, did the end of witch scratchings, did it mean that belief in witchcraft was fading, was waning and dying out? Or did it mean that simply people were more mindful that they were going to get prosecuted for this, they were going to get fined for this, going to get hauled before the magistrates, and they needed to come up with, if, if, if they wanted to protect themselves, with another, another method. And I think that's what happened. And, and you do begin some contemporaries, some uh, comments on this, you know, some clergymen actually kind of wrote about this kind of thing. They say, you know, don't believe that just because people don't scratch alleged witches anymore, that they don't believe in, in, in the existence of this kind of witchcraft and they don't feel it in their own lives. It's just that they, they know now that they're, that they're going to get in trouble um, and they, they, don't want to, they don't want to pay the fine. And they've actually, they've come up with, with new methods and new means of breaking spells. And, and those included things like, you know, things that you might just be able to get away with without being taken to court, like throwing dirt in a alleged witch's face or spitting in their face. These kind of practices became more important in the, um, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So moving forward a little bit further um, to the middle of the 1800s, um, and, and there's there's a fairly significant discussion um, on cursing, which again is another aspect of, of this darker side of witchcraft, uh, and, and in particular associating that with Irish traditions at this time. Uh, although it does happen elsewhere, doesn't it? Is this a particularly prevalent thing around about this time in our history? Well, in around the middle of the 19th century, there was a great deal of migration to mainland Britain from Ireland. Uh, it predated the potato famine somewhat, but it was massively accelerated by the kind of apocalyptic devastation that was visited on Ireland by the potato famine. So you get just simply lots more Irish people living on mainland Britain, you know, coming over on the ferry, uh, departing in Anglesey or in in Liverpool and elsewhere. And Victorian travellers travelling around Wales in the 1850s and 1860s, you know, you'd you'd meet quite a lot of Irish people on the roads. And, you know, they naturally, people brought their folklore and and their ways of surviving um, from Ireland over to Britain. And one really well-established way of surviving in desperate times in Ireland was to, uh, was to go begging and to use both blessings and cursings to try and elicit arms, to try and elicit donations from the people that you met either on the road or the people's houses that you called at. And, you know, if you were, uh, you know, you can imagine if, you, if your family is starving, you have to do something to, to try and help them. You're starving yourself. You need to get a little bit of food, a little bit of fuel, maybe, maybe some clothing. And, People would, would, would go, and, and you know, it's a very well-established tradition in Ireland. It, you could also find it elsewhere, as you said, but particularly powerful and vivid tradition in Ireland. People would go to people's doors, and if they were lucky enough to be, to be helped, to receive assistance, then they'd offer some very profuse and very lyrical blessings. You know, it's, very, uh, it's quite impressive, actually, if you, if you look into the actual detail of, of, of the blessings that people uttered. You know, they're very complicated. I, I wouldn't be able to, to do it very well, with, for example, without a lot of practice. You know, take to, took a lot of poise, took a lot of learning, took a lot of kind of verbal skill and practice. So that's, that was one side of it, of trying to elicit arms, that one way of people kind of fell back on folklore to try and deal with the disasters and the, and the hardships of the mid-19th century. But there was, a, there was a kind of a dark side and a threat behind the, the blessings as well, because if you didn't help someone out, 
if you didn't give them a few potatoes, if you didn't give them an hour or so by the fire, or maybe some clothing you didn't need anymore, then you, you never know that the, the person who, the needy person who, who came with their little children, maybe they'd call for, for God, for, for, for Yahweh, for the deity, to, to try you, to judge you. Maybe they call down a curse, and, and people did this. Cursing, um, you know, I've used the word cursing in a bit of a, a, a vague way so far in the podcast, but I, I, there's, a, there's a more specific meaning of cursing, especially in the 19th century. Cursing was, it's kind of like a dark prayer for misfortunes to, to blight evildoers. So, so the idea of it was that it, a curse would only fall, it would only land on somebody, it would only have an effect if the, the victim, the target, was indeed guilty of a crime. And if they weren't guilty of it, if they didn't deserve the curse, in other ways, in other words, excuse me, um, God would ensure that the curse didn't, in fact, fall upon them, that it would kind of whiz around in the spiritual ether. And you never know it. If, if, if the person who, who kind of levied the curse, if they'd done so unjustly, it might come back upon them. So cursing is a type of, you might say it's a type of malevolent magic with an inbuilt sense of justice unlike uh, Maleficent witchcraft, which is just harming somebody, whether they're guilty or not, whether they deserve it or not. And, and, and this, form of, this form of cursing was used by um, Irish people in, in desperate circumstances in Ireland to, to beg, and, and in other ways, to kind of intimidate people who acted in an antisocial way, who you know, were involved in evicting people from farms who were in def- desperate circumstances. And it was also used by the Irish people that moved to Britain, trying to escape the famine as well. And you, you can find cases of you know, you know people traveling you know people walking in rags on the roads of wales in the 1850s something like that and you know they meet travelers and if the if the travelers didn't weren't prepared to help them out just a little bit you know maybe maybe they would get down on their knees maybe they'd put their hands together they'd look up to the sky they'd beseech god and you know they say you know say something quite quite frightening really you know may you never have another another piece of good luck may you be haunted by this and and you know this, this preyed on people's consciousness, so, um, consciences. Excuse me. So, so it's it's an example, really, how, of how how folklore, which can is often very artistic and in some ways is quite picturesque, very lyrical, very impressive. At the same time, it's really closely related to the to the social and economic history of the era and people's people's most pressing and desperate troubles. And of course, wherever you have bad, then you must naturally have good as well. Which, in terms of cursing, means that you need counter cursing at that time as well. And, and is that becoming quite a strong trade or profession for some people at this time as well to kind of offset this, this practice? Well, there's a long tradition of people doing magic professionally in Britain, people offering all sorts of magical services, fortune telling, love magic. You, you know, if you're having uh, trouble wooing the object of your heart's desire you can get a little bit of help from a fortune teller or, or a cunning man or cunning, cunning woman and people who also provided uh, counter witchcraft therapies and spell breaking and what have you i didn't detect that the number of people offering counter witchcraft therapies really increased as a result of uh, for a few decades irish cursing becoming a bit more prominent in in british people's consciousness um, but there, there certainly were lots of fortune tellers and cunning folk as well who throughout the Victorian period and beyond who, who, who you know, who did a pretty good trade, um, both in towns and in cities and in, in villages, you know, across the country. 
Um, so, so there were certainly uh, there were certainly those services available, but I, I, I didn't get the sense that it increased particularly because of um, um, the, the kind of moment and the decades when Irish folklore became a bit more common in Britain. In fact, I didn't really get the sense that the Irish tradition of, of cursing, which, as I say, is very artful and um, you know very impressive type of folklore, I didn't get the sense really that that got much passed on actually from Irish communities um, to, you know, to, to sort of English and Welsh and Scottish and other, and other people. Now, I want to focus a little bit on, on the folklore aspect in particular now, which, which is after all our, our main area of interest here. So moving into the kind of the end of the 19th, so towards the end of the 19th century, people begin to pronounce that witchcraft is dead, that witchcraft doesn't exist anymore, it's died out, it's extinct, you don't find witches anymore. And at this point, obviously, this is where Victorian folklorists start to enter the picture. And, and there's an explosion of folklore and folklore collecting and investigation and study around this time in our history. What happens at this point where people start to say, well, of course, there's no witchcraft anymore, is there? And then Victorian folklorists start to go, well, hang on a minute. Well, it's, it's a situation where there are quite a lot of misunderstandings and misunderstandings that I think have, have coloured the subject of this topic, uh, coloured the study, excuse me, of this topic ever since. As you say, Victorian folklorists had the long view in mind, um, the, the, the gradual increase in civilization as they saw it, the waning of what they um, described as, as superstitious or, or, or primitive beliefs. And, and for their part, the, the informants of Victorian folklorists who, um, as, uh, who, who tended to be people who lived in the countryside because the folklorists kind of were, were very animated by this assumption that, 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 that folklore was only really vivid and only really survived in the countryside and probably wouldn't be, there weren't that many folklorists who thought that you could find anything like this in towns. Um, and they were wrong about that, incidentally. Um, the, the informants in the countryside, they, they, they kind of went along with this and they, they seemingly um, confirmed the suspicions of the Victorian folklorists. So, so, so when people went out, you, you know, whether they'd be, oh, I don't know, um, ladies from the local area or doctors or, or clergymen, or the, the, other, the other people who were folklorists in this period, and, and they went to ask about witchcraft and, and they, they heard from, from, from the farm workers and from others that, oh, they're not around here, there haven't been any for a generation, there haven't been any for a generation or two. But I do remember there was an old lady, old mother so-and-so, 90 years ago. People said that, you know, that she, that she could do things, that, that, you know, that she could, uh, you know, she could travel particularly quickly, for example, or, you know, she could do all, had all sorts of strange powers. And um, so, so these, this kind of locating witchcraft in the past and saying it hadn't existed for a few generations, informants seem to, seem to say this, they seem to kind of go along with this theory. But the, the problem is that that wasn't really what was happening and it wasn't really what informants were saying either. You've got to, you've got to listen really very, very carefully when you, when, you, when you read the accounts of Victorian folklorists because what I think people were trying to do primarily when they said witchcraft was a thing of the past, that it was exploded, that it was gone and that it was only something that, that was, was a real pressing danger generations ago was people weren't being straight about, about that. They weren't being honest. They, they weren't you know just straightforwardly saying what they thought had happened they were trying to avoid talking about the topic 
they were trying to avoid making any reference to people who had or were thought to have strange harmful powers in the present day and the reason why they were trying to avoid any of those references were they had the they had a fear you know they had this sneaking suspicion that, that somebody who could bewitch somebody that could hex somebody that could lay spells maybe they also had other strange powers they, they could tell when people were talking about them maybe their ears burned particularly or they could hear they could sense it and they'd be if, if they had their misdeeds advertised they'd take revenge on people so basically people were trying to when when informants said that witchcraft was a thing of the past they were they were trying to avoid trying trying to avoid talking about witchcraft they felt or suspected was active in the present day and unfortunately these kind of strategies to avoid the, um, the, the the dangerous pastime of talking about witchcraft they seem to confirm the prejudices and the suspicions and the theories of Victorian folklorists that this was just these were just primitive ideas that were on the cusp of dying out and and that's why I think we've ended up we sometimes end up kind of misunderstanding um, the meaning and the significance of the work of Victorian folklorists. Uh, and if we're talking about this this kind of area, we have to mention, I suppose, Margaret Murray um, and, and her investigations into witch cults, which, which have been controversial for, for many years now. Do you find her work particularly damaging to this field or do you see it in a different way? Mm. Well, I suppose it's... It's captured people's imaginations, captured many people's imaginations since since Margaret Murray outlined her theory in such vivid terms that that you know what rich, witchcraft essentially was was a an ancient pagan religion, uh, a form of nature, nature worship that had been driven underground and was and that this religion was prosecuted by the gloomy clerics of the Reformation and the sort of medieval period. It, it's a powerful story and um, so I'm not um, I'm not sort of totally I'm not hostile to it on an imaginative and a storytelling level but ultimately it's and you know if you look at the work of you know, most famously of folklorists like Gillian uh, Bennett who wrote she wrote an article in the journal Folklore Margaret Murray who believed her and why Margaret Murray's uh, was the queen of selective quotations and it's quite outrageous really how she just used tiny little snippets and bits and pieces from the witch trial documents in the early modern era re really done in incredibly bad faith to try and to try and make this case so although I, I think it's a great story I think it's it's really important part of witchcraft and it's a potent myth and you know I encourage people to enjoy it as a story and a myth or to use it or to be inspired by it it, it you know it's just it's just not factually correct that that what witchcraft was about in the past and what the references to witchcraft were about was a underground pagan religion. It, you know, principally when people were, you know, like I said, witchcraft can mean many things and it can, it can mean, uh, it can mean white magic, it can mean grey magic, but principally what people in the, in the past meant, you know, up until round about the early middle of the 20th century when they spoke about witchcraft was something like mystic interpersonal harm, the, the harming somebody else with, with esoteric power. So it, it, Margaret Murray is responsible for a lot of misunderstanding. The uh, theory didn't get kind of properly debunked until many years really after she she first made it, and it it, it got a lot of um, I suppose it got a, a big profile from Margaret Murray writing an article for the Encyclopedia Britannica and so on. Um, but it, you know, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm 
I think it's, I wouldn't describe it as only damaging because as I said, I do think it's a, it's a potent myth, but it's, you know, it, it really is just the most extreme example of what you can do with very, very, very selective quotations. Yes, it's unfortunate, isn't it? And we, uh, and, and we should move on, but you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and it is a shame because she was actually a very, very good historian in terms of her research into Egyptology. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she was excellent. It's just, it's a shame it went that way, isn't it? Um, you can't fail to be impressed by it, really, though. Even, even though, you know, I'm sort of, you know, I'm totally against the thesis on, on the level of factual history. I mean, I think it's amazing what she did. As, as you say, you know, her main, her main field was in Egyptology and, and how amazing, you know, given all the sort of discrimination against her as a woman to have done, so, done such great work in Egyptology. And also, you know, to, she, she must have had su- such a kind of personality and su- such an influence to have, uh, you know, be, be able to, uh, to spread these ideas. So, so I've got a kind of lingering um, admiration for her in a, in, a, mm. in a qualified way. No, absolutely. And, and we have to have respect for so many of the women who worked with folklore in, in different ways throughout the 20th century, because let's be honest, we wouldn't be in the position that we're in in terms of our folkloric collecting and our folkloric knowledge without the work of, of those women who were, who were really important to the subject, working, as you say, at a very difficult time when the people who are running these organisations are your stereotypical white, upper-middle-class men. So they did great work, they absolutely did. Now, there's one other famous person who I want to just cover very briefly um, before we move on to the last couple of points, um, and that's because they're quite absent from this book, and I've seen this commented on before by, by other people, and that's the figure of Alistair Crowley. Now, I think I know why that is, but why did you choose to, um, not to overlook his, his work, because it is in, you know, in the study, but why did you not give it the prominence that some people might have expected him to have in this book? Mm. Well, I, I wanted to make sure that the focus was very strongly on the idea of mystic interpersonal harm, which is which, which is which is my definition of the kind of dark side of witchcraft that, that that brings in everything from the kind of folkloric conception of witchcraft to psychic attack to you know to other versions of it in in the present day. And I, Alistair Crowley is an amazing and impressive figure and really important to the practice of and the theory of, of, of modern magic but I saw most of his contributions as being elsewhere really you know in the creation of his own you know his own tarot deck for example or, or you know sort of various theories about how magic works bringing together and elaborating on other traditions there are some ways that well, you know I think probably any many people really who were um, who get a reputation for being involved in magic and, and the occult also begin to attract rumours that they've, uh, you know, they've been involved in the practice of the dark arts as well. And there was a, a little bit of that with, with, with Alistair Crowley. And, and, you know, he had, he had some interest in this area. But I, I thought that ultimately, you know, he's, he's a figure that's been written about so much and most of his, his, his contributions were, were elsewhere. So I, I thought it, I just didn't think it kind of worked and it, and it fitted in thematically. That's, that's why I thought, you know, there's a, there's a section, there's a case study on the, biography of, of Dion Fortune of, of Violet Firth was a birth name um, who, who, who coined this idea of, 
of, of psychic attack, as I was saying earlier on. I, I, I think in, in, in terms of the, the history of um, the Maleficent type of witchcraft, I, th I think actually, although Dion Fortune is more of an important figure here, here and I, I know she's probably not as, um, as, as sort of revered to, today or, or, or celebrated today, and, and she's seen as a, a bit more of a middle-brow author perhaps, but I think she's, she's more important in kind of perpetuating and continuing the story of belief in um, harmful esoteric powers than, than is Alistair Crowley. Yes, uh, as you say, it has been covered extensively, and um, what is important is, is not to overlook the, the many, many case studies and many, many people who uh, are so important to the field and, and whose cases need to be recognised, who are just ordinary, everyday people. You know, the, the, um, the ducking of stebbings, for example, this is just a, an ordinary guy going about doing ordinary things, and we can't lose that history by only focusing on the bigger and glamorous people. So those, those yeah. things are really important to record, aren't they? I mean, I have to, you know, I have to be contrite that, I, I, you know, I spent a long, long time researching this book, and I, uh, you know, I tried to make it as as kind of complete as it as it could be. And oh, goodness me, you'd you'd really have your your head in your hands if you if you saw how, how long and what pains I took over it you know I've been researching this topic for 15 years but I, I must admit that you know there are things that subsequently you know I, I, I've come to think that yeah I should have put more about that in it and you know I wish I'd included some more about this and, and you know there are there are some things about and, and I, I take on board people's um, some of people's observations and some of people's criticisms maybe there should have been a bit more about Alistair Crowley and in particular in relation to um, grimoires and the sort of practice of high magic and, 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 and this, this kind of thing. Um, but, uh, you know, you know, so, 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 so there might be room for a few more editions in, in the second edition, but, 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 but by and large, I, I think my, you know, I think my focus is kind of, it, you know, it still stands ultimately. Yes. I, I think that balance is important and, and yes, uh, any non-fiction author, I'm one myself will tell you that it's really hard to draw the line anyway. You could just keep writing, but then books would never actually come out because we would never finish writing them, would we? Um, to, there's a couple of little areas that I want to look at very quickly before we wrap up, and I'm aware of the time. Um, one is very positive and one is quite negative. So I'm going to take the negative first so that we end on a more positive note. Um, witchcraft belief and witchcraft practices do decline in time. They, they perhaps haven't declined as much in the Victorian times as people uh, say that they have. But as we move through the 20th century, they do naturally decline as as you know, science and modern technology and other forms of life increase. But they, of course, don't die away. And even looking in Western areas, although particularly outside of Western areas, they're actually quite dangerous at times. And I guess because it's an area that I've looked at myself because I did some work on safeguarding for the NHS around this case at one point, the Victoria Climbier case is, is an example of this. 
um, there are still dangerous practices aren't out there that we need to be aware of aren't there? absolutely yeah um, there's a I suppose internationally and throughout history you can find that they've often been people who feel they're bewitched have, have often tried to employ violence to cure themselves either to intimidate the person that they feel is responsible or sometimes to exercise the person that they thought is responsible to kind of break their powers and their spells and you know those witchcraft things I was talking about is an ex example from the kind of the folklore of Britain but if you look at some of the um the kind of council witchcraft practices in parts of sub-Saharan Africa in, in West Africa for example they can often revolve around the um purifying power of pain of you know rubbing chilies in people's eyes or you know beating people up or sometimes where some, sometimes um sometimes killing people and, and and echoes of that sort of aspects of that uh tradition of uh exorcism being conducted with a certain amount of command with a certain amount of maybe of pain or of, a, of the very least verbal violence have in recent decades been imported into parts of the western world in african style pentecostal churches but this is not to say that that these ideas are simply have currency and um, purchase among people of the african diaspora in the victoria Columbia case for example which is the horrible case of a little girl from ivory coast who was killed in um year 2000 in london after be, being where she was brought by one of her distant relatives a sort of great aunt um she was kind of like, you know, taken lots of churches and beaten up and sworn at and, and cut and attacked and seemingly in the belief that she was kind of manifesting uh, an evil power that was bringing bad luck to her great aunt. Um, it wasn't just her, her great aunt that from the Ivory Coast who perpetuated this abuse. Her great aunt's boyfriend also did, who was a guy called Carl Manning, who was a Londoner. So the, I think that the point is that... Uh, magical beliefs and magical practices um that they're fairly contagious um they they can spread and they can sometimes because they're you know they kind of relate to often quite desperate and really pressing misfortunes people are suffering from they can sometimes take you know really violent and abusive forms and some so there are there are some uh, violent and abusive forms of, of of counter witchcraft techniques if you like of exorcisms and so on as i say that within you know certain varieties of pentecostalism or, or, or there might be certain types of gin removal for example in this country that are uh, you know are done in a in a similar way <clears throat> ordeals and other things uh, yeah they, they exist around the world and with the uh, greater movement of people around the world some of those ideas have been um, and some of those practices have been brought to britain in recent decades and you know it's a it's, it's a difficult issue it's a very sensitive issue i don't i think when we're talking about the dangers of magic there's always there's there is always a danger of kind of overstating the and, and you know creating something of a panic around what we're facing but there, there are real problems here as you've said yourself and as you know you 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 you, you know a lot about ultimately that there are there are real problems with what social workers call um, child spiritual abuse nowadays and this this typically involves kind of coercive and violent and generally sort of unpleasant harrowing horrible exorcisms and um, they're done against adults as well as as, as children but the uh, 
the Department of Education in, in England and Wales now collects figures on them. And they're very provisional figures. Some local authorities don't submit any cases at all, which suggests that the uh, phenomenon is being um, understated and undercounted at the moment. But I, I, I'm just waiting on the kind of the, the latest figures from, from last year to be released. I, I would assume that it's all been completely, uh, that the system's been sort of thrown into disorder by the coronavirus. But the, the, the last set of figures recorded, it, it was somewhere in the region of 2,000 uh, cases um, over, over the course of a year of, 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 that social workers have come into contact with of these kind of you know these really unpleasant exorcisms of, of children who are it, it, sometimes they'll be called witches sometimes it, they'll be said to be possessed but the effect is basically the same it's the notion that they've got some sort of evil spiritual power within them that's that's kind of emanating outwards and sort of harming their household and harming their families it's a very serious problem and I, th I think it deserves a lot more attention and consideration it is a very serious problem, but we also need to be mindful of the fact that it is a very sensitive and difficult issue, as you say. And what we must not lose sight of, of course, in this as well, is that, yes, there are going to be cases here where they are downright abuse. And that's because there are people who are abusive. End of. That's just how those people are. And it's inexcusable. But we have to also be mindful of the fact that this is a cultural thing and this we're dealing with people's beliefs here as well, aren't we? And because those beliefs don't sit within Western culture in the way that our beliefs do, that makes it even harder to deal with in our own culture. But in those cultures and belief systems where they are native, these things are still happening. And then it becomes a very different and, and more difficult issue again to deal with, doesn't it? Yes, it, it is really, really difficult to deal with because, uh, you, know, you know, this problem in itself starts to intersect with kind of xenophobia and, um, and, and racism and, and other things. So, it, so it, is, it is very, very difficult to deal with it in a just way. But ultimately, I mean, I, I'm encouraged by the example of, Victorian England and I, and I think we can learn something from Victorian Britain and Victorian England where greater law enforcement and more regulation ultimately um, a more active and uh, more professional police force managed to bear down on violence against people that were accused of, of witchcraft and, and, and you know it's not to say it didn't stop people but having these kind of ideas it didn't stop people suspecting that their neighbours were casting spells and, and, and the rest of it on, on them. It didn't stop them being, being rude and downright unpleasant. But I think what the modern history of witchcraft tells us is that actually public action, the action of the state, the involvement of the state can, it, it might not completely eradicate the worst consequences of these sort of magic, magical beliefs, but it can really reduce them. And I think we could, I, I'm not saying I've got the answers, you know, I, I invite, uh, you know, I, you know, I think there are a lot of people who know more about this than me. And, and, and I think we need, you know, as a society to come together to, to think about this more carefully. But I, I, I am hopeful that we could come up with some sort of system of regulation and of, of rules to kind of um, to reduce, if, you, if, if not completely eradicate the, the harms that come from this kind of child spiritual abuse. For ex just to take one example, in, in, in some parts of the world today, it's it's illegal to accuse people of, of being a, a witch in you know in a non-jokey way of, of you know of a, a witch in the terms of practicing um 
evil magic. Now, you know, I, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to at least consider the idea that, you know, we should have something similar in this country for, in particularly for the case of children. I, I wouldn't, I, I don't think it's pastors should be able to accuse personally children of being witches or being possessed by the devil. Um, in, in some churches nowadays, you know, the, the demand for exorcism, the practice of exorcism is increasing around the world in lots of churches nowadays, in the Roman Catholic Church, in Protestant churches, in the, in the Russian Orthodox Church and elsewhere. And in, 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 in some churches, it's um, uh, the clergy are prohibited for performing exorcisms on children. And, and again, I think we could we could consider doing something something like that here. Um, uh, you know, you know, I know they're very complicated. Um, it's a very complicated and very sensitive subjects. There might be some sort of unintended negative effects of those proposals I've, I've had, but I, I, it's just a, just a starting point. And, and ultimately, I, yeah, I, th- I think if we, we look at how the belief in the negative type of witchcraft was kind of pacified in the Victorian p- period by the police force, maybe we could do something similar nowadays as well. Yeah, I, as I say, it, it is a difficult subject area and not one I'm going to dwell on any further, but to not include it and to not discuss it is to deny that it exists. And, and that's not the right thing to do because it's no. part of the topic and, it, and it's an important part of it and it needs to be recognised. With that, we'll draw a line under that and finish with the flip side of that, which is a more positive twist on it. And that's the idea that, as I say, where you have a bad side to things, you have a good side. So where you have bewitching, you have counter-witchcraft measures and, and you, you have unwitching, as, as you refer to it in the book. And you make a very interesting point and there's a very interesting discussion about this idea of, of undoing uh, maleficent witchcraft as a mental health treatment, essentially. Can you just finish by saying a little bit about that? Yeah, I was struck by how much the practice of cunning folk in the Victorian era and fortune tellers and others, and and later as well, and this would be true of some magical and esoteric practitioners today, how much it overlaps with certain forms of positive thinking and certain varieties of counselling, cognitive behavioural therapy and, and so on. You know, if you start to look into the academic literature on these topics, you can read about the therapeutic power of ritual, for example, about people who are, you know, people who are struggling to cope, people who have really hard lives, people who are afflicted with all sorts of problems. Sometimes just just, just going back to the practice, the regular practice of a ritual can help. And, and you can see you can see that kind of at work with um, in, in the way that, that fortune tellers and others, cunning folks, some of them um, conducted themselves. But the, uh, the, the, the main thing that, that I was really struck by in this, in, the, in this whole area, really, was of the absolute central importance of belief. Not belief as something that comes automatically, necessarily, or something that comes easily, or something that people just have, but belief, belief that you're going to get better, belief that you're going to get over this and that you're going to get past this. And it's something that white witches, fortune tellers, cunning folk in the Victorian period taught their clients, and something I think that from my conversations with some esoteric um, and holistic uh, healers today that they still do as well, um, which, which is to, to, to teach people to, 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 to kind of think positively and to, to believe that they can get over this, they can get better than this, that their troubles will come to an end. Often that belief is kind of amplified and assisted by all sorts of storytelling, all sorts of um, sort of therapeutic sessions and, you know, the kind of rituals that I was talking about. But, 
but belief belief that you will be well that you can get well that you can get past this that you can get over this that that can really help people that that can essentially amount to a really powerful version of the placebo effect and the, the, the placebo effect we know is very real very important and should should be used so you know whether or not you think magic's uh, magic actually exists is, is a real force in the world you know i i think i think that's a personal and a metaphysical question so i'm not trying to tell anybody what to think on that issue but for some people believing that they can get over these troubles believing that they can get over these illnesses it, it does actually have the effect of you know sort of reducing your blood pressure you know it's been studied sort of physiologically reducing your blood pressure reducing your heart rate you know reducing the kind of level of stress and inflammation people have in their in their bodies and what, and what have you and so you can begin to see that you know I'm, I'm, i don't want to give a completely uncomplicated and blanket picture of cunning folk and fortune tellers and esoteric healers as i'm sure all your listeners and yourself can imagine this kind of work it, it, it People can, you know, take the mickey, so to speak. People can be profiteering. People can manipulate people, play on people's fears. And, and that does happen. And, and it, we need to be very careful about that. And we need to watch out for that and stop that from happening. But I do think that, you know, as I, I haven't just got a negative portrayal of the practice of, of white magic and esoteric healing. It, it can help people in, 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 in some cases to, to feel more optimistic, to feel more positive. And I, and I, and I think that can ultimately... Um, help people to cope with uh, life's, life's troubles. And I think that's a great place to leave it. Um, it this, I would much rather end on a positive note than a negative one, and that is a really good one. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm aware that we've spoken for a little bit longer than, than perhaps uh, we would normally do, but this is such a broad subject area that I make no apologies for that. I think it was very important to do so. And we have, let's face it, only scratched the surface of this as well. So the only thing I can do is to advise people if they are interested in no more to go out and get a copy of Cursed Britain, which is now available in paperback as well as hardback um, with a new introduction. Uh, Published by Yale University Press, there is a review of the book on the Folklore Podcast website, as I say. Uh, you'll be able to get it from all good booksellers support your independent bookshops wherever you can uh, what's next what are you working on now well thanks so much for all that Mark and thanks everybody who's uh, who's listened as well sorry I took a bit of a while to get going to, to begin with um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm currently uh, well I'm, I'm, I'm teaching at Imperial College I've got a li- little uh, I was going to say baby daughter I've got a little toddler uh, uh, Mary who's uh, 16 months old now so she's keeping me very busy but the short answer is that um, uh, currently I'm researching the history of oaths, of oaths, of uh, sacred promises, of you know promises and affirmations made with with rituals, because I, th- I think the history of oaths, you know, the, the aspects of it that are quite similar to the history of witchcraft. You know, we kind of imagine oaths as be- belonging to the cultures of you know the ancient world or I don't know the Anglo-Saxons, the medieval period, and that kind of thing. And actually, I've, I've been looking at the various sources, social history sources from the 19th, early 20th century. And it's amazing how many oaths people were using and how, how people were um, sort of behaving in this way and making promises and, and positioning themselves through oaths in the 19th century. And, and I really want to know, what, you know, why don't we really use oaths that much today? And what's the consequences of that? Is that a good thing? Have, have we lost something by not um, by not bringing the sacred into our um, our kind of affirmations and our and, and, and our and our promises and what have you? So, so that's what I'm looking at. Excellent. And a book on that in due course. Is that the plan? 
probably an article first, I think. You know, well, it, 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 I'm sorry to say, if the last book's anything to go by, yes, you can expect another book in 12 years. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll not hold our breaths, perhaps, but we'll, we'll wait with bated breath. That seems Hopefully fair, doesn't good, it? Hopefully it'll be I'm sure it will. Uh, Thomas, thank you so much for taking the time, and it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Likewise, my pleasure. Thanks so much, Mark, and thanks everyone for listening. My thanks to Thomas for a very full interview on the subject of his research into the darker aspects of witchcraft and magic. Now, we've only looked at a very few areas, so do grab yourself a copy of the book if you'd like to look further into this area. I'll be continuing to release back episodes of the book club in audio between the main podcast episodes from time to time. But in the next full episode of the Folklore Podcast, I'll be talking to Norwegian musician Einar Selvik the founder of the band Wardruna, about ancient Norse instruments and music and his study into this area, as well as the challenges of recreating these sounds. I hope you can join us. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.